If you were given a quiz and asked to describe or define what is a Christian, I wonder if your answer might be similar to what I discovered on the internet this past week. A Christian, according to Google, is someone who has received Christian baptism, someone born into a Christian family, someone who regularly attends a Christian church, someone who is a member of a Christian denomination. That's what you'd put on the test, right? One of those four. Well, uh, hoping not. Uh, if so, we have a text before us today that might have something to say about that and give us a clear idea of what actually a Christian is and what a Christian sh should be defined as, what should make up their life. It's in Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to read for you verses 19 through 27. Do you have a Bible? Open it to Philippians 1 with me, if you would. And I'm going to read 19 through 27. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I, am to have, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for the progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll end there. So in verse 21, we read a pretty good and practical definition of what it means to be a Christian. And then the rest of these, these, rest of these verses kind of fill that out. Not only is verse 21 a practical definition, it's a definition that promotes joy, which is the theme of this book. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a comprehensive view of the Christian life. It's a definition that promotes joy. If you agree with Paul's definition, if you live Paul's definition, you'll never be lacking joy. We've seen others pursue joy unsuccessfully. Like the hedonist who says, for me to live is pleasure. Their pleasure may come from having a lot of money and focusing on sex, recreation, leisure, comfort, whatever. But when that pleasure disappears, guess what else does? Their joy. Then there's the person whose life revolves around control. To me to live is to be in control. They must have control over circumstances, control over people. Because if it gets outside of that category, things get scary. And when they do, I lose my joy. Then there's the intellectual whose life is all about gaining knowledge, at least more than the next person. But whenever the foundation for their understanding is shaken, their, their world falls apart and their joy with it. And then, of course, the moralist. There's not a few of them here, right? The moralist, the legalist, uh, 
who says to me to live is to be a good person. You remember the story of Les Miserables, that famous novel? One of the main characters in that story, a policeman named Javert, commits suicide at the end of the story because he he cannot stand the idea of a criminal like Valjean being better than he is. He can't understand or believe that he needs forgiveness as much or more grace and, and so forth as the criminal Valjean. It's unacceptable to him. He was a moralist. And when that went away, his joy went away. So what is Paul after here? Well, what should we pursue in our understanding of this beautiful summary of the Christian life? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's look at it, phrase by phrase. The first, the life in Christ. What does Paul mean here when he wrote, for me to live is Christ? Well, first of all, we must understand, as Paul did, that this spiritual life that unites me to Christ comes from Christ. So where does your physical life come from? It comes from your parents, of course. You know that. But our spiritual lives. The source of our spiritual life is Jesus Christ. He creates my spiritual life. He sustains my spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of this. Just after he, Paul has identified all of us, without exception, as being caught, trapped in sin, he says this, But God, starting in verse 4, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. Who made you alive in Christ? God did. By grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. It comes from God. The spiritual life that Paul's speaking of comes from God. And then Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that famous verse we all know, Paul said there that Christ sustains his life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He sustains me. He creates the spiritual life. He sustains the spiritual life. You know why you still believe? Because Christ sustains you. That's why you still believe. If he didn't, you wouldn't believe any longer. No matter how powerful your conversion was, he must sustain you in your belief. In order to be able to say, for me to live as Christ, it requires that you have been regenerated by Christ's Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, converted by Christ, and sustained by Christ. That's the only way you can say with Paul, for me to live as Christ. I suppose you can say whatever you want, but the only way for it to be true is what I just said. You see, there is no life in Christ if there is no Christ in your life. Is Christ in your life? Not just in your life, but is he your life? So it comes from Christ, this life that Paul speaks of. Secondly, it's shaped by Christ. He he gets to create what he wants in you. He he gives it and then he shapes it, kind of like clay, spiritual clay. He says this in Romans 8, 29, Paul does. For those whom he foreknew, that is, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Listen to this closely, friends. The Godhead, the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit elects, predestines, conforms every believer into the image of Christ. This is God's work. We are shaped spiritually by Christ. And this spiritual shaping rolls out of, boils over into your physical experience, the way you live from day to day. It's shaped by Christ. So Jesus is reshaping us from selfish, sinful, worldly-minded people into sacrificial, righteous, heavenly-minded people. That's the process of sanctification, Paul would call it, becoming more like Jesus. Christ is shaping you into his image. Jesus is the one who does this, does this. and his earthly life is our goal. His earthly life is our model. That's the form that, that the master artist is shaping us from. There's a picture of Christ's life, and the master artist is shaping you to reflect that. His life is the intended design of our lives. Many times we do or say things because that's what others we, the others we respect do or say. For example... Hudson Taylor used to get up every morning at 3 a.m. to pray. You want to be like Hudson Taylor? Then get up at 3 in the morning and pray. Some of us do that. We want to be like Hudson Taylor, so we do what Hudson does. Right? We have these kind of influences in our life. You know, you might, you might uh, be interested in uh, Al Mohler or David Platt. And from, from time to time, they'll put out a list of ten, top 10 books you ought to be reading. I want to be like David Platt, so I guess I'll read those books. And so I do. I read the books because I want to be like David. And it works its way through all of our lives in different ways. Athletes put out diets and exercise plans, and we want to look like them, so we do it. Right? And we all are successful, aren't we? <laughs> to Paul, Jesus was that. All these people I've been referring to are what are now being called influencers. You've heard that. To Paul, Jesus was his only influencer. He, he knew that his life was created by Christ and shaped by Christ. Does he shape your life? Are you doing everything you can to be like Jesus? Are you, are you complying with submitting to the work of the master artist in your life? Sacrificially loving those around you, going out of your way to be kind, caring, seeking out those who don't know Jesus and telling them about him. That's what it means to be shaped by Christ. And then thirdly, this life that Paul is describing not only comes from Christ, is shaped by Christ, but has Christ as its objective. Christ as its objective. Look at verse 20 in Philippians chapter 1. As it is, my eager expectation, hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's having an objective of Christ. No matter what, Christ will be made much of in my life. This is what Paul wrote, what Paul said, what Paul lived. Is making much of Christ our daily objective? If you claim to be a Christian, there this, this must be your objective. The author of Hebrews would say amen to that. The theme of his letter was the supremacy of Christ over all things. Think about this with me for a second. 
concerning making much of Christ. If you make more of something that's inherently less valuable than something more valuable, it's not only unwise, it's dangerous. To say, I value this, which I know is less valuable than that, but I'm going to value it anyways, is unwise and dangerous. Let me give you an example. You may value chocolate and licorice more than vegetables. Not only is that unwise, it's dangerous. Just ask your mom. That's not a good idea. It's the same way in the spiritual realm. If you value something more than Christ, and Christ is supremely valuable, it's unwise and dangerous. Sadly, we can and do have many less valuable things competing with Christ in our lives, don't we? Isn't this what our Christian life struggle is? To make much of Christ more than these other things? It is. We can become consumed with building our bank accounts, climbing the business ladder, pursuing superiority over our neighbors, coddling our children. But for those of us who claim Christ as our Savior and Lord, we must pursue Him as our objective. If anything else is our objective, Christ isn't. I think this is the issue. Isn't the issue of whether or not this is the case in the Christian life? Isn't Paul's statement to live is Christ the most fundamental challenge of our lives? I think so. Dear friends, do not be fooled into thinking that he is your objective just because you give a few dollars per month to the offering basket. Do not be fooled by a couple hours of service in the nursery per month that Christ is your objective. Don't be fooled into thinking that your occasional good deeds to the needy proves that Christ is your objective or that you've stayed consistent in your Bible reading plan. Do not be fooled that your moral lifestyle and your interest in social justice proves that Christ is your objective. All these things that I mentioned are good and they're necessary, but individually they are not the decisive factor that confirms that Christ is your life. What makes Christ your life is having everything in your life be focused on Jesus. We just heard it read from Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what having Christ as your objective is. Looking at Paul's life, that's what having Christ as your objective is. We have many examples of this throughout Christian history. We don't have to look far. What makes Christ your life is not living in separate compartments at home, then at church, then at work, then at leisure. So the people at work don't recognize you when they come here. Or vice versa. Having Christ as your life requires him to fill all your compartments. If you're truly a Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart. You understand that? You understand that? All Christians do. And the Holy Spirit's presence slowly, methodically, but surely reduces all competitors with Christ in every area of our lives. That's the Holy Spirit's work. That's that sanctifying thing that I talked about earlier, being shaped into the image of Christ. This doesn't mean, and I want you to hear me, this doesn't mean you can't watch TV having Christ as your objective, but it does affect what and how much you'll watch. 
It doesn't mean that you can't make a lot of money. But it does mean how you spend what you're saving for and the amount you're giving will be dramatically affected if Christ is your objective. It affects everything. How you relate at work, how you relate to your children, how you relate to your neighbors. Christ being your objective changes everything. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ being our objective. When Paul wrote this letter, his career was essentially over. He was in jail in Rome. Did this mean his life was over? Paul's freedom was gone. Was his life gone? Paul's friends and family weren't around. Did this mean his life was meaningless? For all Paul knew, his physical life was going to end with execution any day now. What was Paul's response? Well, let me read it to you. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It didn't matter what his circumstances were or his outlook was. Every day was the same to Paul. To live or to die, I want to make much of Christ. Friends, if your life collapses because your career is collapsing, then your life isn't about Christ, it's about your career. If your life is falling apart because your family's falling apart, then your life isn't about Christ, it's about your family. If your life is collapsing because your health is failing, then your life isn't about Christ, it's about your health. Insert anything you'd like. For me to live is Christ. Let's look at the second phrase. To die is gain. Let's look at the gain and death. This is difficult. This is a little more difficult, I acknowledge, than the first. And because it's a little more difficult, more challenging to understand, I'm going to start out with a Spurgeon quote. All right? I'm going to establish myself by putting myself on solid ground here with Spurgeon. He said, to live is Christ has no paradox in it, but... To die is gain is another, is one of the gospel riddles which only the Christian can truly understand. To die is gain makes no sense to anybody that doesn't know him. Even to those who are acquainted with him and even come to church regularly, to die is gain is senseless. Let's think then about what Paul meant when he wrote this conflicting statement. To die is gain? Please explain. Well, let's look first at when death is not gain. Death is not gain if my life hasn't been about Christ. Dying after a self-centered life is loss, not gain. You will not experience gain in death if in life all you've been is obsessed with mundane things like money, status, power, etc. Do you really expect to live like that and then when death comes along, see gain? Think again. You're familiar with this passage from Ecclesiastes 5. And he came from his mother's womb. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Just as you came in, that's how you're going out. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. That's meant to be depressing. 
But if your life is about making much of your social life, is death gain? Your, your friends won't join you in the grave. They may shed a tear or two at your funeral, but they won't be joining you. If your life has been about money, your death will be lost, not gain. You won't be taking a dime with you to the other side. When death is gain, let's look at that. That's what we're after, right? We want to know the answer to that question. It's easy to understand when it's not gain, but how can death be gain, Pastor John? Let me, let me try to explain to you what I think Paul's thinking about. We all acknowledge, no one is denying it, not even Paul, that death brings loss. That's not the issue. Loss of wealth, vocation, relationships, position, hobbies, interest, lost. How can then it be possibly gain? With so much loss in death, how can Paul actually say, much less believe, that it's gain? Here's where it's required that we look on these things with the eyes of faith. As we peer through the expanse, that, that hazy expanse, if you will, between life and death, looking, as it were, across this deep, dark canyon of death to the other dimly lit side, we're not real sure what we're looking at over there. There's some talk in Scripture about the other side, but it's dim. But we know that whatever it is over there, it's good based on Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it's written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus said in John 14, where I go, I go to prepare a place for you with many rooms. It's a great place. You're going to love it. John Schubert paraphrase. But on this side, this side, death is that cold, lifeless corpse left behind. But there across the ravine, that scary, deep and dark ravine, is our spirit. Here is that decaying flesh. There is the joyful soul. Whatever is on this list of things lost is more than compensated on that list of things gained in the next life. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus tells us not to be troubled by the separation that we're going to experience when death comes along. Don't be troubled about what is on the other side of the ravine. It's really, really good, Jesus promises. We say that we lose relationships in death, which is true. Spouse, children, relatives, Christian brothers and sisters. But what relationships are gained? Surely you know that heaven is already well populated with the glorified redeemed, right? You knew that. The relationships in heaven are never interrupted by what's, what interrupts relationships here, selfishness, bitterness, sin of any kind. Wouldn't that be wonderful to never have our relationships interrupted by this sinful stuff that always does? Well, that's what's on the other side. Perfect relationships with humans. Not with your dog, with humans. And I'm not saying your dog won't be in heaven, but I'm saying you think your relationship with your dog is wonderful. 
That's just because they can't speak. <laughs> Relations with humans, on the other hand, look out. But when we get to the other side, nothing interrupts perfect relationships. I call that gain. I mean, I love you folks, and I know you love each other, but there's always that interruption, isn't there? Always that misunderstanding. Always that question. There? Never. Never. We're going to be introduced to folks like Noah. Anybody want to talk to him? Abraham? Isaac? Jacob? David? Samson? I'm interested in a few things. I can't wait to talk to some of those guys. The apostles? The apostle Paul? I want to know who wrote Hebrews. And then we have Christians from history that are there. Calvin, how would you like to have a conversation with him? Luther, Huss, Tyndale, Edwards, Lloyd-Jones, Tozer, Pink. Oh, the list goes on and on and on. I'm glad it's eternity. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be gain. And let me tell you a little secret for those of you who are homebound and stuck in time like everyone is except those who've gone before us let me tell you a little secret once we die and get to heaven all of us who know Jesus will be there and I want you to hear what I'm saying I don't think that we'll be waiting around for our loved ones to show up man it's been 10 years I thought that guy was sick when I left where is he I don't think that's going to be going on and I don't think it's going to be going on because eternity, before time and after time and during time, eternity is timeless. The moment you cross the threshold, the rest of us will be there. It is timeless. You won't be waiting for me or me, you. We'll be there. Is that gain or loss? Gain. I know many of you are great fans of Sun Valley Church, and that makes me happy. You may think, oh, this death thing, I don't want to die and leave the joy and the fellowship and the spiritual encouragement we have here at Sun Valley is so wonderful. Let me tell you, let me promise you, you'll miss nothing when you go. The fellowship there will outshine the best thing we got going here by far. The means of grace here, things like the serving of the elements in the Lord's Supper, the preaching, the teaching, the fellowship, etc., will no longer be needed there. You will be in the presence of Jesus himself. Who wants the Lord's Supper in the presence of Jesus? No one. It's gain. You won't need the Lord's Supper. You won't have the Lord's Supper. In order to remember him, as Jesus says... No, he will be looking into our eyes. You definitely won't need any preaching or teaching. The moment you step into heaven's glories, the moment you see Christ, you'll be a better theologian than any theologian this world has ever known, including Paul. 
The moment you see Christ. How know I this? 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul acknowledges this humbly. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, then shall I know fully. So as incapable as you may think you are as a Christian here with doctrine and theology, just wait. You will be a scholar that you cannot believe the moment you see Christ. I know that we mourn the loss of our loved ones. This is fine and good. But may I suggest that it's those of us who remain that should be pitied? Good thing there's no tears in glory. They'd be up there weeping and wailing currently for those of us who remain. The dead are experiencing more gain than you and I can imagine. It's us who must remain and suffer with sickness, pain, sin. We're the unfortunate ones. <laughs> they are free to enjoy only good and glory and boundless happiness with no interruption. What are we crying for? Friends, we are Christians with a great hope, aren't we? A great assurance. We have great gain to look forward to. When one of us passes into death, we may shed a tear or two for this temporary separation, but we don't weep for them. No, we rejoice with Paul. Living as Christ, dying is gain. Before I end this sermon this morning, I must plead with you that are here today and don't really have this glorious future to look forward to, you who still believe that this world and this life is the main thing, this verse that I've been focusing on this morning, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and die as gain, must confront something in your mind, don't you think? Are your affections for this world or are your affections on what you can see and experience right now? Are your affections on Christ who will take you to be with himself in that land of great gain? Can you say with Paul, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain? If not, you can change all that right now, right where you sit. You can acknowledge that your affections have been on temporary things and on yourself instead of on Christ. This misplaced affection is what the Bible calls sin and is the reason Jesus came. He came to live on this earth a God-centered life that you were required to live but can't. So he lived it on your behalf. And then if you'll but believe on him, trust him, he'll credit that to your account. <laughs> it's the best possible deal that there is. He takes your sin, you get his perfection, you stand forgiven before God and accepted before the Father. For nothing on your part except belief. You must believe that he came to live for you, to die for you. He came to take care of our self-centered thinking, thinking and living. And then from this moment on, if we've received Christ, we do our best to be shaped by him and follow him. 
Friends, if you want death to be gain, Christ must be your life. You can't be your life. Your vocation can't be your life. Your money can't be your life. Your family even cannot be your life. Christ must be your life. Then and only then will death be gain. We sang earlier today, all I have is Christ. Did you mean what you sang? All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Those are wonderful words. But friends, they're eternally significant. You, just must, you must not just be able to sing them. This must be your living. This must be your embrace. So let's look at the combination of both of these statements. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and see what we can take away as we close our sermon together. When we take these two statements together, I think we have an unfaltering, God-glorifying worldview. No matter what you face, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, it will not matter. You'll be able to make much of Christ because he's your life. It won't matter if things are falling apart all around you because Christ is your life. You can submit to those things. It will have no effect on your ability to joyfully make much of Jesus whether you're sick or healthy, rich or poor, sounds like wedding vows. Let's look here at how embracing the combination of these two critically important phrases that really describe the Christian life, to live as Christ, to die as gain, let's look at them through the rest of the text in case you forget, think I forgot them. Verse 22 I think we see here it is the best way that we can serve God. Look at 22. If, I'm a, if I am to live in the flesh, that's an if. If I'm a li, uh, alive, this means fruitful labor for me, but which I shall choose, I cannot tell. <laughs> Commentators don't know whether that means I'm not going to tell or, or I don't know. Either way, the point is the same. Living for Christ, dying is gain, is the best way I can possibly serve Christ. It's the only way to have fruitful labor, this attitude. If you have any other attitude, if you're trying to gain the, the praise of men by serving wherever you serve or giving whatever you give, it falls flat on its face before God. The only way to truly serve God is to serve with an attitude of living for Christ and dying to gain. Doesn't matter. Secondly, the best thing that we can do for our loved ones is to have this worldview. To make much of Christ, to live for Christ, and in death gain. Whether we live or we die, our attitude is critical for our loved ones to see. I want you to see how Paul, in verse 23, connects this description with his love for the Philippians. And what I'm trying to apply to you is your love for the people in your life that you would consider loved ones. I am hard-pressed between these two, living or dying. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that's far better, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh here is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain to continue with you all. Why? For your progress in the faith and your joy. You know how you're going to see your children progress in the faith joyfully? 
is living for Christ, making much of Jesus. That's how. Not making sure they make every sports team, not making sure they have the latest clothes and are in the best school. It's by you making much of Jesus. That's how your children will progress joyfully in the faith. And then thirdly, it's the best, and I would say only response to Christ. Is there another response that Christ might accept? No. Either your life is controlled by your desire to make much of Christ or it's controlled by your desire to make much of yourself. There's only two options. Are you going to make much of Christ or make much of yourself, make much of your family, make much of your leisure, make much of your money, make much of your career? What are you going to be? You can't have two competing priorities. Jesus made this clear. Paul makes it clear. He's making it clear here. Jesus said in John 17, 19, okay, this is the response to Jesus I'm wanting you to consider. I want you to do business with Christ here from John 17. Jesus said, and for their sake, whose sake? Your sake. Their sake. Those who would believe on what the disciples would say. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Listen to the profundity of that statement. Jesus is here speaking for your sake. I've sacrificed myself for your sake. I've sanctified myself for your sake. I've set myself. I'm here for your sake. My life is for your sake. Jesus speaking, the second person of the Godhead. Jesus' life is about us. He left his heavenly glory, his, and he chose hardship, loneliness, pain, rejection, and sorrow for you. The object of Jesus' life, according to Jesus, is you. For their sake, I consecrate myself. He did this for us. Jesus said, everything about me is for you. I'm going to live perfectly for you because you can't. I'm going to suffer and die for your sake because you need someone to suffer and die for you. I'm going to rise again on the third day for your sake so that you one day will rise again. Since Jesus' commitment to us and to our eternal joy is what it is revealed for, to us in John 17, 19, how ought we to respond to this? Indifferently? Lukewarmly? Can't wait to get out, of my, out to my carly? Shouldn't our response be that of Paul's? For me, to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. And just so you know that I'm not asking every Christian in this room to be a superstar Christian, let me end with this story. I think you've all heard of Jim Elliott. You know, we talk about him here occasionally. Maybe we ought to put up a picture. I don't know. Um, we talk about him enough. I think most of you know who Jim Elliott is. He's the one who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he, that which he cannot lose. 
Does it sound anything similar to Philippians 121? Yes, it does. Do you know that Jim had a brother? I didn't know this until a few years back. When my son went to Peru, he ran into a guy named Bert Elliott. Let me tell you about Bert Elliott. Bert was the older brother of Jim. And, he, and Bert described his younger brother Jim as a brilliant meteor. But Bert was a faint distant star. Instead of, instead of having thousands of people lined up with their telescopes to watch this amazing meteor of Jim Elliot, Bert just faithfully, night after night, rose and was just there. He did the same thing day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. <clears throat> he was just faithful. Jim Elliot's name is in the lights, no doubt, for good reason. Books have been written about Jim Elliot. We all know who he is. Nobody knew Bert. Bert attended Multnomah School of the Bible in 1949, met his wife Colleen there, and was invited to go to Peru by a missionary to help out. They needed help in Peru, so he said, I'll go. And Bert was in Peru years before Jim died in Ecuador. Did you know this story about Bert? But Jim had a brother named Bert who served faithfully for 62 years in obscurity. But I would say, oh, what obscurity. Bert helped plant over 170 churches. in the country of Peru. And he died at, at the age of 87 in 2011. What's my point? My point is to make much of Christ right where he plants you. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be a theologian. All you gotta do is make much of Christ in your home. That's your boring job. At school, in this small church, make much of Christ. In your neighborhood, which is very average, make much of Jesus. That's all. In everything you do and word or deed, make much of Jesus. This morning, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do this every first Sunday of the month and today's no different. Except that I want you to think about whether or not you're making much of Christ as you prepare yourselves to come participate. First of all, do you know Christ? <laughs> Have you embraced him by faith? If so, these elements are for you. If not, then they're not for you. They're meaningless to you. So I'd encourage you not to take them if you don't trust Christ. But if you do trust Christ, I want you to think about as you stand in line waiting to come forward and be served, whether or not Christ is my life. 
Am I making much of Christ at home, at work, at school, or not? And then, if you need to, confess that to Jesus. Ask his forgiveness, which he will freely grant because of who he is and what he's done. And then come forward and be ministered by the Spirit of Christ himself. These elements, the elements that represent his body and blood, body broken for you, blood spilt for you, he sanctified himself for you. These things remind us of that as clear as can possibly be. But I want you leaving here, friends, this morning thinking about, is your life Christ and will you see gain when you die? That's what I want you thinking about. I'm praying, I've prayed during this week, this past week, that this would be on your heart the entire time. I'm going to ask you to uh, read with me the Apostles' Creed, which is in your bulletin. Uh, this in preparation for the Lord's Supper. These are simply a list of things we believe. In, in case some of you aren't familiar with this creed, in the last stanza it says that uh, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That doesn't mean we believe in the uh, local Catholic Church. We, leave in, we believe in the uh, universal church. That's what, what the word Catholic means. Okay, We're not Catholics here. We believe in the universal church. The church actually exists in China. Did you know that? And it exists uh, in Africa. It exists here and in Wapato. And so that's what the universal, we believe that the, the spirit of Christ indwells Christians across the planet and over time. That's all that means. So don't get confused by that. But these things are just a list of things we believe about Christ and his church. If you believe these things, I want to encourage you to come forward, no matter where you are spiritually. If you trust Christ, I want you to come forward and do business with Christ. Okay? So stand with me, if you would, and let's read this together. And elders, if you can make your way up front while we're reading this so that we can serve God's people. Let's read I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Do you believe those things? Then you need to come forward right after I pray and read the words of institution. Father, we come to you with hearts full of thanksgiving, knowing that you sent your son to take our place on Calvary, to live the life that we cannot. Father, we will be eternally grateful for that wonderful blessing. Jesus, we thank you for, through your spirit, converting our soul, transforming our lives, making us into people who 
are shaped to look like Jesus. We desire Jesus, Spirit, and Father to reflect these things in our lives daily. Build us up when we fail. Forgive us when we fail. Help us to be the people you would have us be. Help us to see Christ as our life and death as gain. Lord, do your work in our people here at Sun Valley today. We pray this in your name. Amen.